You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right. Well, good morning. How are you? Yeah, good. Good. It's good to see you. If you're a guest, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, And I would just like to go on the record and say that a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown. Uh, What he didn't show you in that video earlier was all the other times uh, that I was really feeling myself out there on the skating rink this weekend. Uh, I was, yes. No, and if I do say so myself, uh, that was quite good. That was quite good. That, that clip does not give you the full picture of what you need to know about me in the, in the skating rink. Nonetheless, uh, it's good to be with you guys. I hope you guys were able to come out uh, for a lot of our kickoff weekend uh, festivities this past weekend. It's been a lot of fun. I, I have enjoyed it. Uh, literally have had some of my favorite memories, I think, uh, in the life of our church uh, over these past couple of days. But uh, so we are in this series that we are calling People of the Pages. And essentially what we're doing is we're looking at some things that we think are timely for us to remember and rediscover about what it means for us as a church to be a people who embody what we see on the pages of Scripture. Now, we're not covering everything that we want to be as a church, but we're covering some particular things uh, that we see in the Bible that we think are important for both our present and our future. Uh, And today I wanted to start by giving you something of a parable. All right. Uh, It's actually a true story from my life, but one that I think is a really fitting parable for where we want to go as well. So, uh, It was an ordinary weeknight. Uh, I think it was a Tuesday, in fact. Uh, And I don't know how your Tuesdays go, but our Tuesdays are very routine. They're very, very routine. We we get home from work, uh, and then we make dinner. We have some family time and some Bible time around the dinner table. And then, and from there, it's showers and bedtime for the kids. And for the grownups, it's chores and getting everything ready for the next day. Basically, from the time we leave work to the time we go to bed, it is really just a, a head down and grind kind of evening for the Bailey family. And it's virtually the same thing for us every single Tuesday without exception, except for this Tuesday. This Tuesday, we were in that um, in-between space of bedtime and chores, uh, and I was busy trying to clean up dinner on like the slim chance that maybe, just maybe, there would be enough time for me to veg out with a show when everything was said and done and the kids had gone to bed. And from somewhere behind me in the kitchen, uh, I hear my wife say, oh, babe, look at this. It's so pretty. And I do that, and I did that thing that all great husbands do. And I said, uh, "Oh yeah, babe, that's awesome." Without even looking in her direction, you know what I mean? Uh, and then she she says, "No, Michael, look." And a bit reluctantly and annoyed, I turn around. And when I do, I find Lauren looking out of our back window at one of the most beautiful sunsets either of us has ever seen. Like, I don't quite have the words to describe it to you, but it was one of those where all of the hues of pink and orange and purple were just perfectly meshed together. And they were, and the colors were so vivid and bright, like real life 4K. It was almost as if some master artist had just like put it up there in the sky for us to see. And I just went, oh, wow, that's amazing. It was one of those where like the only appropriate response is to just put down what you're doing and enjoy it for a bit. Uh, And so in fact, what I wound up doing was I just put down my chores and went outside for like 15 minutes just to soak it all in until it eventually faded to the dark of night. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. 
Maybe you've had an experience like that as well, but it dawned on me that if I had never stopped what I was doing, if I had never looked up, I would have missed it. I would have never known or even been aware of what was happening around me, and I would not have gotten to see the glory of it all. Now, I imagine we've all had an experience or two like that in our lives, but I think this is a fitting parable for us because to be a people who embody what is on the pages of Scripture, it will necessarily include us learning to look up and become aware of the God who is moving and working all around us. And that's a bit of what I want to impart to us this morning. And so today we're going to look at a story in scripture that you may be familiar with. It's, it's a fairly famous story in the Bible. In fact, if you grew up in Sunday school, you almost certainly saw it illustrated on a felt board somewhere. All right. Uh, it's a story from Daniel chapter three uh, and the story of three guys. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right. And so feel free to grab a Bible and turn there. We're going to pick up in verse 13. And as you do for context, this happens at a point in time in Israel's history uh, when Jerusalem has been conquered. So the, the, basically uh, the Jewish capital, the nation of uh, Judah at this time has been conquered and the Jews have been taken away into exile to the Babylonian empire. And the king of Babylon is a guy named Nebuchadnezzar uh, that I'm going to call King Nebu for short. All right. Just because it's a you know big word. Uh, and at this point, King Nebu has set up a golden image of some kind and basically demanded that all people in the empire bow down and worship before it when the right music plays. Or, or if they don't, they'll suffer basically state-sanctioned punishment by being thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, obviously, this puts our guys, Shad, Mesh, and Abed, in a bit of a pickle, right? Because they are Jews. They know who God is, they know that he is not a God made by human hands. They know that this image is an idol and a false God. And so they know it would not only be sinful, but a lie to treat something as God that isn't. So they refuse to worship the image, knowing full well what the consequences of their decision are going to be. And so when the rest of the empire essentially drops to their feet, when this ancient DJ drops the beat or whatever, these guys stay standing. They stay standing. And eventually they get snitched on, and that's where we pick up in verse 13. It reads, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered them and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, trigon, I don't know how you say that, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So King Nebu basically calls them up and is like, look, guys, I'll give you a second chance, Okay. I'm going to give you another opportunity. Let's, let's not be dumb here. Let's not be dumb. Think this through. What, what is more likely to happen? You get burned up when you get thrown into the furnace or your God to come and actually deliver you? Essentially, he's saying, listen, it's fine if you want to believe in your God to help you sleep at night. It's fine to believe in him if that helps bring you some, some meaning or some sense of purpose. But listen, don't don't be that serious about it, okay? 
Don't be that serious about it. Don't think that he's the only one. Don't let that impact what we're trying to do here in the empire. And certainly don't be foolish enough to bet your life on his active involvement. And for my seat on the bus, I think that is a very similar ethos to the one that pervades so much of our time and place too, isn't it? Like, so for example, I mean, we, we hear messages all the time of like, if you want to be religious, that's fine. Do you, that's totally fine. But don't, don't actually live like God is real or the only one. And don't be foolish enough to think that he's actually involved in any of this that you see out there. If it works for you privately, well, then that's great. But, but don't bring that out here with the rest of us. Plus, as a society, we, we have a general sense of, a general posture, if you will, of skepticism towards the supernatural, don't we? Like, um, like for some of us, and you don't have to raise your hands here, but if, for some of us, if someone gives uh, God credit for doing something in their life, maybe like getting a job that they've been praying for or getting healed of some sickness or whatever, we sort of think, oh, that's cute. That's cute. Like, like they're a little naive, but you know, good for them. And so King Nebu is just like, listen, guys, what you know is that fire burns and you are going to be thrown into the fire. Let's not be silly here. You can see what's going to happen. Don't bet your life on what you can't see. In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So let me just say this. This might, be, this might be one of my favorite passages in scripture because this is just an absolutely gangster response to the king of Babylon, right? Like this, they look my man in the eye and say, we don't even need to talk to you about this. We believe God can save us. We believe God will save us. And even if he doesn't, Mr. King, we are still with him. I mean, this is a, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north and loyal to the true emperor type of moment, if you know what I'm saying. That's a gladiator reference for the uninformed out here and a very good one at that. But it's a baller moment, okay? But, what I, but I wanna camp out here for a minute because there's actually something very important for us to see. I wanna I want camp out here because bigger than this being an amazing moment, all right, there's something that we need to see about what is happening. Their response exposes to us something very important about the nature of faith. And it's really wrapped up in those three statements of their response that we believe God can, we believe God will, and even if he doesn't, we're still going to trust him. Now, when I talk about faith here, I'm not talking about salvific faith, faith that trusts in Jesus' Jesus's atonement for sin. I'm talking about the ongoing lived-in experience of faith in the life of, of the believer. The type of faith that you carry into your relationships, into your marriage, the type of trust in God you carry into your marriage or your family or your parenting, the type of faith in God that you carry into your job or your school or your neighborhoods, the type of faith that you carry into your struggle, into your hardship, into your suffering, whatever form it may take, whether it's a fiery furnace or a bad diagnosis, a wayward teenager or something in between. Biblical faith is the faith that believes God can, God will, and even if he doesn't, I'm still going to trust him. 
And this is what we see all over the pages of scripture. But, but I want to talk about it for a minute because biblical faith, the faith that we are encouraged to have, right? It embodies, it necessarily embodies all three of these things. And in fact, it goes bad when it doesn't. So for example, let's say that you are a person who is all God can and God will, right? Like, look, I love you. You are, you are my people, okay? Like I am, I am with you. But hear me. If that is you and you don't have a category for if he doesn't and how to respond therein, then you are setting yourself up to crash and burn. It is very dangerous to have a faith that only believes those two things without the third. Because here's the deal. God is God and you are not, okay? God is God and you are not. And that means at times he might do things and have reasons for things that you and I can't understand, And part of what makes him God is he has the authority and the power to do what he wants to do and the complete knowledge to know what's best and when it's best. But what we can know is that through the cross and the resurrection, what we can know through the cross and resurrection is that even when we don't know why God did or did not do the thing we believed in faith for him to do, it's not because he's not good. It's not because he's not loving and it's not because he's not in control. The cross and the resurrection preach loudly to us above all things that God is good and loving. And whatever happens in this life, good or bad, is not going to be the final story. So we can trust him and follow him even when he doesn't do the thing that we believed for him to do. But if you don't have that category, it can lead to all kinds of pain and heartache. It can lead you to a place of disorientation and doubt. You can become disillusioned and cynical and even angry at God because, God, I believed in you. And if I believe in you, you're supposed to do this thing. And I feel like you didn't come through. And so maybe you conclude that he's not there or doesn't care. Maybe some of you in the room have been there. Maybe even some of you are there right now. And that's the danger. That's the danger of having a faith without that third piece. And we do well to make sure that we have that category and how we think about, feel towards, and trust in God. But but can I just put something out there for the rest of us? I don't think we often see or talk about the danger of having the third without the first two. I don't think we talk about that too much. In fact, without the first two, You really just become someone who believes like King Nebu and the rest of the world around us does that there's nothing more going on here than meets the eye, despite whatever you might claim to believe. We wind up being a people who think that you shouldn't live with the expectation for God to get all that involved in your life. In fact, it'd be dangerous and maybe even a little naive or foolish to believe like that. And so the result is, is you become a person who actually lives that way who doesn't expect God to do much in or around you, at your job, or in your home, or your life group. A person who might be faithful to do the things they know that God wants them to do, but a person who does them without ever really getting their hopes up. Never really believing that God is going to do anything through their faithfulness, whether that be in themselves or in the world around them. A person who doesn't ask much from God. A person who finds praying like the persistent widow in Luke 18 to be an exercise in foolishness because God's just going to do what he wants to anyway, right? Like, what do my prayers even matter if he does anything at all? Or maybe we become a person who prays, like I heard a pastor put recently, prays with a reverence without the anticipation for answer. 
You feel that? A person who, when we pray, we sort of hedge our bets with God protecting ourselves from the letdown or disappointment, whatever it may be. A person who honestly, for all practical intents and purposes, lives like God is just not really there. In short, without the first two, you kind of become a functional atheist, to be quite honest. And listen, this is just so easy to slip into, to become a person who says with their mouth that God is able, but to functionally live like something else was the case, that he can't or he won't, or as if maybe he's not there. And everything in this life, what it really depends on is it really depends on you. And honestly, I think a great way to diagnose this in ourselves is to ask if God immediately answered every prayer that you prayed this last week, what would be different today? What would change? I think the way we pray, it actually tells us an awful lot about what we actually believe is true about God. But the point is, is that mature faith has all three of these categories, and you need all three. And the Christian life is meant to be lived in this tension. And when it doesn't, we wind up with a faith that doesn't trust God for big things, a faith without a fight, a faith without pleading, a faith without full-hearted engagement, and quite honestly, a faith that doesn't really believe in the God that we see on the pages, a God who is present and active and involved all around us, a God who turns a thing like murder into salvation and brings life from death. But what we see here is that to be a people of the pages, what that means for us is we want to be a people who have a bold faith in a big God. That that's the end goal. That's where we want to be, a bold faith in a big God. I mean, here, the thing, the thing that empowered our guys here in Daniel 3 to do what they did and stand up in the face of King Nebu, what empowered their response was the conviction, their conviction that the God of Israel was real that he was real, that he was there, that he cared and could do something about whatever situation they found themselves in. That's why they didn't approach the fiery furnace with fear because they knew who God really was and that's where their confidence laid. And what I want you to see this morning is that this is exactly who God shows us that he is. That this type of God who is there, who is present, who is actively involved and cares about what is going on in your life is who he reveals himself in scripture to actually be. So picking back up in Daniel, King Nebu hears their response and he does not like it one bit. He orders the heat of the furnace turned up so hot that it kills the men that he ordered to do it. And then he has our guys thrown in. But then the unexpected happens. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He got up quickly, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men into the fire? And they answered him and said to the king, True, O king. Yeah, king, we did. And he answered and said, But I see four men. I see four men unbound and walking in the midst of the fire, and and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, We don't know who this fourth person is. Some scholars say it's an angel. Others say it's a Christophany, which is like a big word for an appearance of Jesus before his incarnation in the Old Testament. I think it would be awesome if it was the latter, but we don't really know. But the point is, is that either way, it's a physical demonstration of God's involved presence with them. What King Nebu and his court and subsequently us are meant to see is that God does the thing. 
He does the thing that our boys believed him for. He shows up. He moves. He rescues. He delivers. He saves them. He does, in fact, get involved in their predicament. And he does the thing that only he can do. He enters into the story and defies conventional thinking and displays his glory to absolutely everyone such that when they call the guys out of the fire, they find that not a single hair on their heads has been singed and their clothes don't even smell like smoke. And it absolutely pops a circuit in King Nebu's brain. In verse 20 and verse 28, it makes him respond. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. It's a little extreme, all right? Like we can admit that. But we get the point, right? Like Nebu gets confronted with the reality that this God is different. This God is different than all the other gods that the rest of the world around him worships. This God is different even than him as king of Babylon. This God is something else. This God is the real deal that our boy's faith was not put in the wrong place, but that their God was a God who was living and active and involved and far greater than anything else anyone believed in and far greater than anything else that anyone could think or imagine that there was no God like this God. And just real simply, the thing that I want you to see in all of us is that the God of Scripture, the God of the Bible, the God that we worship, He is not simply the author of these pages. He is that. He is not just the author of these pages, though. He is also a character on them. Do you understand? He is a character in this story, meaning he is living and moving and working all around us. This is who he is. By this, I mean, when it comes to this world that we live in and these lives that we live, God is not just some cold, distant theology. You understand what I'm saying? He is not just some cold, distant theology, but he is a player in the game. And this portion of Daniel is really just one place that we see this. It is on page after page and story after story in Scripture that the life we inhabit is not one where God is distant. Like just like he was as if he was some sort of like clockmaker who just sort of like set everything up and then steps back to, to watch it work and let it run on its own. No, that's not who he is, but he's one who is active one where he is involved in human affairs. Like the psalmist writes in Psalm 77, like what God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. God, you are here. You are doing things. There is none like you. In fact, you can hardly read any page of the Bible without seeing that this is exactly who God is. In Genesis 1, he creates the world and gives life to it through his spirit. He walks and talks with the humans that he made. In Exodus, he parts seas and he leads his people in a pillar of fire and smoke. That he gives them bread from heaven like we talked about last week so that their needs are met, so they are kept alive. He speaks through the prophets and fights Israel's battles with angel armies that send their enemies fleeing for their lives. This is who he is. And and the most obvious display of this for us, the one that should, should communicate to us loudly and clearly that our God is here and involved is the incarnation of Jesus. 
In the incarnation of Jesus, God literally and physically enters into the human story, taking on flesh in Jesus, divinity and humanity coalescing. And he does so through the miraculous event of a virgin giving birth. And through this Jesus, he changes lives and he changes the course of human history. Like you and I are here today because our God got involved. You understand that, right? Like we are here as the church because God did a thing that he didn't just leave human history to its own devices, but entered into our story to change everything. And through this Jesus, he's healing the sick and he's giving sight to the blind. He's freeing the possessed. He's raising the dead. And most importantly, he is conquering our great enemies of sin, death, and the devil forever. So he is. And if that weren't crazy enough, okay? Like I, I know how this sounds. If that weren't crazy enough, he then literally indwells in his people, the church, me and you. He attaches his very spirit, his empowering presence to us such that his kingdom breaking into the world would continue through me and you. That all of this work where he is actively involved, that he would continue to do it in and through us. Like, are you kidding me? This is amazing. This should, this should rightly rile you up that this is who our God is, that this is the story that we inhabit. What I'm trying to get us to see that in our day-to-day, -day, in your day-to-day, -day, this is who God is. This is the story that you and I enter into together through the gospel. And it begs the question for us, do we see him this way? Do we see him this way? Do we know him like this? Do you understand that he is not only a God you can trust when things go bad, but that even then he is a God who can and will be actively involved in whatever it is you're going through? Do you expect that? Do you expect that? Do you expect him to be involved in your life in meaningful and transformative ways? Do you look for where he might be doing things in or around you, at your job, in your neighborhood, in your marriages, with your friends. In C.S. Lewis's famous series, The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, there's this interesting little part in the fourth installment, The Silver Chair, where, where two children, Jill and Eustace, are sent to a place called Underland. By, uh, they're sent by Aslan to rescue Prince Rillian, the heir to the throne of Narnia. I'm, I'm a big C.S. Lewis guy. I'm not going to lie to you. I love him. Speaks straight to my soul. But essentially, in this book, the prince has been taken captive by the queen of Underland, which is a miserable place, okay? Like, it's, it's a place of darkness. It exists beneath a mountain. No sunlight gets through. The people who live there have never even really seen the sun. It's sunless. It's dreary. None of its inhabitants are all that happy or joyful. And what we learn is that the queen keeps the prince and others there, not by force and not by might, but through enchantment, through intoxicating their mind such that they won't leave, such as they don't want to leave. So when the rescue party arrives and confronts the queen, she proceeds to try to enchant them as well. She thrusts a magic powder into a fire that emits a sweet smell, and then she just starts subtly putting thoughts into their heads. And the kids tell her that, hey, we are going to take the prince back to Narnia into Overland. But her spell makes them believe that maybe, maybe Narnia and Overland don't really exist. She enchants them and she starts saying things like, they're, 
There is no overland. There is, there is no Narnia or Aslan. All is but a dream. It's all just a dream. There, there is no land but this land. And the children, entranced by her spell, begin to slip away. And they go, yeah, yeah, now, you know, now that I think about it, I can't, I can't really remember like, what those things even, even look like. I don't, I don't even remember what, what really they are. I suppose, I suppose maybe we were mistaken. And it all was just a dream. Now, eventually, one of their companions stamps out the fire and snaps them back to reality. But I bring that up because I wonder how many of us are under the exact same spell. Because here's what I know. I know what makes all of this so difficult is the fact that this Tuesday, just like my Tuesday from earlier, is going to feel like just another ordinary Tuesday for you, isn't it? It's just going to feel normal. It's going to feel unimportant. It's going to feel like there's nobody involved in it other than you. It's going to feel completely ordinary. When you go to work, it's going to feel like, man, this is just my job. It's the same as it was yesterday, same as it was last week. This is where I make money, and that is really about all that happens here. And it can start to feel like, well, you know what? Maybe God, maybe God isn't really here. Maybe there's, there's nothing eternally significant about what I do or this place or the people I'm around or, or what, what I'm about here. In our relationships with our families or when we show up to life group, we're going to show up you know, on Tuesday or whatever day it is, and we're going to do what we do, what we always do. And that person is going to talk about what they always talk about, and we're going to say what we always say to them, and we're going to do what we always do. And it can start to feel like, well, you know what? Maybe God doesn't do anything in all this. Maybe there's nothing really more to this than, than meets the eye. When it comes to our sins and our struggles, especially the ones that we have fought for long periods of time, it can start to feel like, well, this just is what it is, right? I mean, yeah, you know, I know God may save me, but he can't do anything about this. This is just going to be what it is. And I am just going to always struggle in this way. Freedom, healing, well, that, that's just a dream, right? Y'all, the pages of scripture are here to stamp out that fire and snap us back into reality as what it has for us. You know, for years, our church had a saying that, that ordinary is not insignificant. And we came up with it to kind of push back on the pop Christian movement that implied that really meaningful Christian, uh, the really meaningful Christian was the one who did like extravagant things for God, who moved overseas and started huge ministries and all of that. And that ordinary faithfulness was just somehow, that, that's just somehow mattered less or was less pleasing to God, and it's just not true. But, but the reason we said it so much, and the reason it's not true, is because there is a God who is actively involved in it. There is a God who is actively involved in your ordinary Tuesday, and it can be all too easy to just sort of lock into the ordinary grind and miss this. And to bring back our parable from earlier, the point in all of this is that we need to learn to look up. You hear what I'm saying? We need to learn to look up and see reality for what it is all around us. See the story that we are all actually caught up in. I mean, so let me just get you to ask yourself this. Like if you, if you believed that this was true, like if you believed that this is really who God was, that he was a character on the page of your life, what would it change about your tomorrow? Like, what would you do differently? How would you think about it differently? 
what would it affect or change? Like if you knew, like knew that God was a character on the page at your office, what would happen? What would be different about the way you approach your work and your job? What conversations would you have? How would you relate to your boss? How would you relate to your coworkers? What prayer might you pray before you go in? What would you think about entering that space? If you knew, like knew, that God was a character on the page of your home, what would you be praying for? What would you be asking God to do in your family or in, your, in the lives of your neighbors? Who would you be inviting in under the premise that God actually wants to do something here? God has something for people in my home. If you knew that it was a character on the pages of your parenting, how would that change the things you say to your kids? How would it change the rhythms and the routines and the things that you do as a parent and a family? If you knew that God was a character on the page of your neighborhood or school or sports team or life group or whatever else, like what would you do? What would you be looking for? Would you be looking for where he's at work? Would you be asking him, hey, God, show me what you're up to, that I might join in with you in this? What about if you knew that God was a character on the page of your deepest pain and suffering? What if you knew that even there, he was a character on the page. And I mean, let's not make it all roses here, right? Like it was not roses for Shad, Mesh, and Abed. What about the times where following Jesus is hard or not personally expedient to maybe your ambitions at work or in society? What about the times where following Jesus will actually cost you something like it did for them? What if in those moments you knew that there was a God who was actually with you in the fire? That there was a God who was there? How would that reshape your thoughts or your feelings or even maybe your experience of it? You see, the, the point, all I have for us today, I mean, this is one thing that I'm trying to get us to, to get, is that to be a people of the pages means that we will need to look up and see the grandeur and the wonder of the God who is before us. It will mean for us to look up and see reality for what it actually is, that irregular Tuesday that you are most certainly going to step into this week. When you head off to work and take the kids to school, when you're trying to squeeze in that trip to the supermarket to pick up whatever you need for dinner, when you show up to your life group or whatever else, that, that in all of that normal, the proverbial sunset is all around you that you don't go into any of that alone. You don't go into any of that without purpose or meaning or opportunity for God to move and work. It all matters. In fact, there is a character far more involved in it than you may even be aware of. And for the times when this whole thing is hard, when it feels like sin is going to win, when it feels like there is no way out or that it will all be too costly, to be able to look up and trust in a God that is there. And not only is he a God that can be trusted in the trial, but he is a God with the power and desire to deliver us from it. Because his cross and his empty tomb unequivocally tell us that this is a God with whom we can get our hopes up, that we can believe for great things. Because he is a God who can and a God who will and a God who can be trusted even when it seems like he doesn't. 
Y'all, this type of faith is rebellious and beautiful in a world that enchants us with the idea that there is nothing more than what we see. But this is what we're called to as a people of the pages. This is what God wants for us and has for us to trust him, to trust that he is who he says he is. And like I said earlier, that the cross and the empty tomb proclaim to us that he is a God far more involved in our story than we could ever think or imagine. And he can do the things that we think are unimaginable. This is who he is. The only question for us as we go forward is, will we look up? Will we look up? Let's pray together.